what is it that liberated beings know? In other words, he's asked for kind of a user-friendly nutshell summary of what freedom's about. Um, And his response was very, very simple. It was that nothing whatsoever should be clung to. These are words you've heard. That non-clinging is the path to freedom. Another way of saying it, and I like these words for myself, is relaxing the grip. You know, we find ourselves kind of tight, gripped. And non-clinging is really just a relaxing back into natural awareness. So this is the topic for tonight's talk, relaxing the grip. And just to start by saying that at retreat and just in spiritual life, one of the things we notice is we remember and then we forget. We remember, you notice you got some remembering and then we're away, we're gone. And when we're forgetting, we're lost in thought, we're contracted, we're reactive. And when there's some remembering, we kind of turn the light, you know, and and look and see the glue, you know, and relax it a bit. So there's a lot of reminders here at retreat. In fact, that's what retreats are designed to be. The big reminder is each other, just seeing each other practicing. And then there's gongs and bells and beautiful natural surroundings. It's just wall-to-wall reminders. And then at home, we also have created, many of us, different kinds of reminders to wake up. And we have the books that we read and the pictures on the walls and the altars, and they make a difference. I have one friend back in Washington, D.C., who has a message on his answering machine, and it goes like this. You have reached my listening machine, and what I'd like to know is, who are you? <laughs> Who are you and what do you want? <laughs> Imagine picking up your messages, you know. The good news is quiet breathing. <laughs> Now, even without a lot of external reminders, what we notice is there is spontaneous remembering. We'll get lost in thought, and for whatever reason, grace, there's something that goes, oh, yeah, I've been lost in thought, come back, come back. And it happens because it's our nature to be wakeful. Our original nature is wakefulness. We're relaxing into that, but we have all sorts of conditioning to forget. As I was sitting last night listening to Ralph, there was that line that's so wonderful, that the reality we seek is who we are. It's a great one, isn't it? That the love that we seek, the truth we seek, it is our nature. But do we trust that? Do we really trust that? And I know for most of us it's sometimes not. We're forgetting and we're suffering and feeling small and deficient and separate. 
And Buddha nature is out there. It's in some other more realized being. It's down the road. It's maybe possibly after the three-month retreat and the trip to Burma and a few other major enterprises. But it's not right here now. This is um, a quote that always reassures me. No matter where or how far you wander, the light is only a split second, a half a breath away. It is never too late to recognize the clear light. So our practice, what we've been doing together these last days, is really one of remembering, of remembering to look, to see what's true, and to let go, to relax the grip. Now the most basic grip, the most basic clinging that the Buddha described and that we discover is that clinging to a sense of being a separate self. It's the root of suffering. It's interesting that in Pali, the word for fear is to be split off, to be separated. Separate self and fear are synonymous. When we're feeling and identifying as separate, we're cut off from the flow, from the mystery, from a sense of unconditional love or belonging, our aliveness. This is Pema Chodron. Being preoccupied with ourself, with our self-image, is like being deaf and blind. It's like standing in the middle of a vast field of wildflowers with a black hood over our heads. It's like coming upon a tree of singing birds while wearing earplugs. We miss out on a lot. And we know it here. We know when we've hit, in these last days, the most difficult weather, difficult emotions, what happens when we feel that fully self-absorbed, stuck in our wants and fears, and there's that solidness of self. It feels very uh, persistent very sticky, that what's happening is happening to a me. There's an I that's owning what's happening. I'd like to explore a little how this sense of self arises. It's so compelling and it feels so real. Sometimes we hear the Buddhist teachings of emptiness or anatta, of no self, and it sounds very conceptual. And I'd like to invite you tonight, if it doesn't match your experience, just to kind of put it aside and just keep checking in with what's real. But to explore it nonetheless, how does this emerge that we feel so much like a separate self? And how, with mindfulness, can we begin to recognize and relax back into our original, whole, wakeful being? While it's our capacity to awaken to wholeness, it's also a huge, huge natural conditioning that we feel separate. Clinging is the basic dynamic of creation. And I'm now going to do a short wrap on why clinging ain't so bad. (laughs) Its expression is partly in gravity. It keeps galaxies together. It keeps us on Earth. That's clinging in a cosmic way, right? (laughs) Just stay with me. (laughs) The molecular attraction, 
Attraction between molecules creates our bodies. Interpersonal attractions propagate the species, bonds families, friends, communities. I know this is rare in Dharma talks to kind of do this positive take, but it feels important to me because I think it's easy to misunderstand Buddhist teachings as saying there's something bad or wrong or unnatural with the fact that each and every one of us feels a lot of clinging a lot of the time. It's part of our nature. All life, even one-celled organisms, survive and thrive by extending towards what's pleasant and contracting away from what's unpleasant. Now, conceptual mind, this world of thinking that we live in so much, is the most recent and complex evolutionary mechanism to further grasping and resistance. It really is, and it works. I mean, look at what humans are doing. It works in a sense. We're thriving in a lot of ways, even though we're destroying a lot of things. One of the ways it works is that it provides the most distinctive and self-conscious sense of self that any living organism on earth at least has. It makes us feel more separate and we can sense it. We identify as a mental self, so we're one step removed from a body. We possess a body and we're removed from the earth and from nature. We get identified as a mental self. Conceptual mind, living in thoughts, means we're living in a dualistic experience. It creates a sense of wanting, fearing self and the object world that we want or fear. Buddha Dasa is a 20th century Thai meditation master and philosopher. Um, Describe the activity of conceptual mind in in an interesting way. Described it as eyeing and mying. That's most of what's going on, eyeing and mying. I is the center of the universe, that all our experience reflects back on this central being of the universe. Each one of us that's sitting here feels the center of the universe. It's an interesting thing. And that all these experiences that happen are belonging to me. That, we own, that there's a self that's owning what's happening. This is a description of uh, one-celled creatures, protocysts. None of these early creatures was anything more than a bundle of biochemicals wrapped up in a membrane bag. Even so, in their makeup and activity, we can recognize the inception of a new quality in the universe. These ancient gelatinous specks of matter showed the beginnings of self-interest and purpose. They had established barriers, definite sustainable boundaries between themselves and the outside world. And although the heady heights of human intellect and introspection lay almost four billion years away, even the most elementary of life forms harbored information about what was part of their own constitution and what was not. Thus, the foundations for dualism, the belief in the separation of self and the rest of the world, were laid. (laughs) This is all in service of not taking it personally. (laughs) (laughs) 
as long as we have this conceptual filter that really revs it to the highest degree, self and other, as long as it operates outside of mindful awareness, our being is contracted. Our being is unfree. Now, the deal is that separate self, that sense of separate self, is continuously reborn. That it arises with all sensory contact. And Ralph described this yesterday, last night, this chain of arising experience that starts just out of sensory contact and emerges into this full-blown and suffering sense of self. So, it arises, reborn, every moment. The challenge means that we have a lot of delusion going on. But that means that also there are many, many moments that are great opportunities to look and see and let go, to see through the illusion, the veil, to touch freedom. So just to explore a little in a more practical way how this happens. The most probably common experience for all of us here in our embodied way is that unpleasant sensations arise. Very few I've talked to haven't had any when they're sitting for these number of days. So I'll give you an example from an interview in the last few days of what typically can happen. There's an unpleasant sensation that arises, in this case, strong kind of twisting, achy sensations. And then immediately a kind of contraction away, an aversion, don't like this. And then this idea, my leg hurts, pain in leg. Then some more ideas, I can't make it through the sitting, it'll keep getting worse, I'll ruin my leg, (laughs) you know, that kind of thing. And then fear that it's going to be really unbearable, really bad. And after a number of rounds of that, moving, moving the posture. And then another string of judging. Most everybody else manages to sit through the sitting. I mean, what's the big deal? And shame, not doing it right. This is that chain, those linkages. I described the other night the Pali word papancha, proliferation. What begins as a simple arising of an unpleasant sensation goes into my legs hurting and then this whole story about a suffering self. Now, it's interesting to look at the conceptual leap because there's several of them. One is going from unpleasant sensations to leg, the way we locate things. Is there really a leg? If we're just open and experiencing what's happening, where's leg? I know for myself, I kind of have this mental map and parts of it get highlighted of my anatomy, you know? (laughs) They kind of define where things are happening. So there's this thing, this concept of leg that we create. And then there's my leg. It's not just sensations happening. It has a location and it belongs to some self. And then there's hurting or pain, which again is one step removed from the actuality of sensations. Lo and behold, the self gets incarnated out of unpleasant sensations. The one who will face future pain, who can't handle pain, who's the victim of overwhelming circumstances, who's the cause of circumstance. The Buddha described over and over again how pain is inevitable, but suffering 
is optional. Suffering is the place that we have some possibility of waking up. It happens as we begin to recognize the arising, the glue, the self-sense. When we see it, we can begin to relax the grip. Now it's interesting to notice because we all spin out where we discover ourselves in the spinning out. But the basic guidelines and practices, wherever we discover ourselves, whether it's at the just simply noticing, oh, idea, my leg hurts, or we're already in the shame for having moved, that's the place we start. The freedom comes in any of these experiences, not only by starting where we are and recognizing, but by connecting immediately with what's true and real in that moment. And for the most part, that means including a very embodied awareness, what's going on. As soon as we connect with what's really happening, experience becomes more workable. There's a sense of intimacy or honesty or realness that actually opens us, gives us more capacity to be with what's true. Now, the proliferation of the sense of self is most clear when you look at emotions, because emotions are a combination of feelings in the body and stories and ideas. In that description I gave you just now of the yogi sitting in my pain in my leg and how it spun out, it wasn't just fear. Fear spun into this whole story about a self that's a wimp, that can't handle pain, that's not doing the meditation right, that has a whole history to it. Eyeing and mying, recognizing the stories that are wrapped around our experience. We don't just judge or get angry. Another example from an interview. It's so easy that a wave of anger comes up and there's a sense of righteousness and even pleasantness for a moment, right? And then soon remorse, I overdid it, I overreacted, then shame, then fear, I'll be rejected, won't make it in relationships, I'm not a good person, it can go to depression, really not okay. So we add the sense of self to our experience, not just unpleasant, We have pleasant experiences. We sit and we meditate and we have those moments when it gets very calm and open, peaceful, clear. What happens? Ah, my meditation is going well. And then how can I feed this? I'll just sit a little bit more up and follow that breath. Where am I feeling it most? And don't move at all. And, you know, we try to kind of feed it and coach it into perfection. And then... There's a subtle sense of pride about it. Mm, good meditation. And it's most clear, the adding on of self, when the next sitting, what happens? It changes, right? <laughs> it changes. There's this deflation. I really don't have it together. That was a one in a million. Well, maybe in a few retreats from now. But the point is we take it personally. We take the weather personally. And when self-sense is added to unpleasant, our pleasant experience, when it's happening to a self or because of a self, there's this chain of reactivity, and that is what solidifies our experience. We go from this 
flow of pleasant and unpleasant and neutral experiences to this fixating. It's kind of like coming and becoming ice, disconnecting from the flow. And this fixating is what the Buddha described as suffering. Now, because we're so identified in the realm of thoughts, training our awareness to recognize conceptual mind is one of the main areas that it's important for attention. I have a t-shirt I got a number of years ago, and it says, meditation, it's not what you think, you know? (laughs) Again, Ajahn Buddhadasa, he was asked how to describe this world, and he responded, lost in thought. It's not that easy, as you've noticed these last two days, the instructions have been recognize thoughts. You know, if you're very, very quiet, sense the thoughts as they're happening. If not, to, you know, note and then just pause. It's not so easy to keep recognizing thinking. They're very, very sticky. One of my teachers, Sokni Rinpoche, describes it this way. This thinking mind is something very sticky. It's always latching on to something. The attention reaches out through one of the five senses to catch hold of a particular object, or it conjures up a memory from the past, or anticipates something in the future. It's always busy taking hold of something. According to one study that I heard, we have approximately 60,000 thoughts a day. (laughs) And... 98% of them we had yesterday. (laughs) Now, I wonder how they did that research. (laughs) But we know it gets repetitive. If somebody else talked into my ear the way my own mind keeps running itself, I just wouldn't put up with it. But we we put up with it. We believe our thoughts. We actually take them to be how it all is. And it freezes us into this kind of cramped, dualistic world. In one story, a little boy says to his mom, Mommy, pretend that you're surrounded by a thousand hungry, vicious tigers. What would you do? And the mom thinks for a while, doesn't come up with a good response, and says, I don't know, what what would I do? And and the little boy says, Stop pretending. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever you think, it's not like that really. Thoughts are sound bites, images, representations, and they lead to disconnecting disconnecting from this moment, from each other. They lead to plenty of misunderstandings. And I'll lead you, I'll read you a story of one, how much the world of interpretation plays in. About a century or two ago, the Pope decided that all Jews had to leave Rome. Naturally, there was a big uproar from the Jewish community. So the Pope made a deal. He would have a religious debate with a member of the Jewish community. If the Jew won, the Jews could stay. If the Pope won, the Jews would leave. The Jews realized they had no choice, so they picked a middle-aged man named Moishi to represent them. Moishi asked for one addition to the debate. To make it more interesting, neither side would be allowed to talk. The Pope agreed. (laughs) 
The day of the great debate came. Moishi and the Pope sat opposite each other for a full minute before the Pope raised his hand and showed three fingers. Moishi looked back at him and raised one finger. (laughs) The Pope waved his fingers in a circle around his head. Moishi pointed to the ground where he sat. The Pope pulled out a wafer and a glass of wine. Moishi pulled out an apple. The Pope stood up and said, I give up. This man is too good. The Jews can stay. (laughs) An hour later, the cardinals were all around the Pope asking him what had happened. The Pope said, first, I held up three fingers to represent the Trinity. He responded by holding up one finger to remind me that there was still one God common to both our religions. Then I waved my finger around me to show him that God was all around us. He responded by pointing to the ground and showing that God was also right here with us. I pulled out the wine and wafer to show that God absolves us from our sins. He pulled out an apple to remind me of original sin. He had an answer for everything. What could I do? (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, the Jewish community had crowded around Moishi. What happened, they asked. Well, said Moishi, first he said to me that the Jews had three days to get out of here. (laughs) I told him that not one of us was leaving. (laughs) Then he told me that this whole city would be cleared of Jews. (laughs) I let him know we were staying right here. (laughs) Yes, yes, and then asked the crowd, I don't know, said Moishi. He took out his lunch and I took out mine. I didn't know if I could get that whole one out. (laughs) So we live in this mind movie, and we make all these interpretations. And probably on the most basic level, the interpretations that keep us bound are these ideas we have about ourselves. We all have these self-concepts, and we go around the world acting from them and making interpretations from them. We try to learn and know what the world is by the movies on this mental screen of ours, kind of looking out, and we believe the world is as we think it. So we get lost in these chains of reactivity that spin out of our stories. One of the saddest kind of outcomes of that is when we really get how it blocks intimacy, not only with ourselves but with each other, that we have these kind of static ideas of who the other person is and respond on the basis of that. So I have this inner exercise I do with myself sometimes where I'll just choose somebody, I'll bring to mind somebody that, I'm, that I care about, my son or a friend or somebody, and then just check into what the visual images and thoughts and ideas and memories that stand out that I'm kind of relating to in that person, who that person is. And then I'll try to drop that all, even my images, and just sense, who is this? Kind of like from the inside, what's it like to be that being? The energy, the awareness, the wakefulness, the changing 
inner life. I expand that kind of exercise with my son while sometimes I'll go into his room when he's sleeping and just look at him because I'll be in this reactive day-to-day thing with him and sometimes just forget, you know, and I'll just look at him and I know a lot of parents do this. And somehow or other the personality stuff drops away and it's just so much easier to see just his beingness and then I'm more in just beingness. And then I'll make a vow that the next day I'm going to just remember and honor this divine being. And probably by breakfast, we're back in the maternal ego with the adversarial son and, you know, the whole trip. It's amazing, though, when we compare our habitual thoughts to the realness of experience. T.S. Eliot writes, We die to each other daily. What we know of other people is only our memory of the moments during which we knew them, and they have changed since then. To pretend that they and we are the same is a useful and convenient social convention, which must sometimes be broken. We must also remember that at every meeting we are meeting a stranger. This world is not made of separate and static objects. There's no connection or intimacy or understanding if we operate out of a conceptual field. We can't find our way to truth. We can't think our way to freedom, to wisdom. It just doesn't happen through thinking. I love the cartoon of fleas that are wandering in a forest of fur, wondering whether there really is a dog, (laughs) you know? It's a sleeper. (laughs) But it's how we try to figure things out. And the deepest knowing does not come through thinking. But we're very attached. So our practice is to open out of the movie of thoughts. And we know when we do it, and we've done it here many, many rounds, each of us, thinking, thinking, and then just opening. And there's immediately this vividness and this immediacy and this realness. And sometimes it's pleasant, and sometimes it's unpleasant. But there's something we trust as we wake up out of just the confines of thought process, this lifting of the veil. But it's a challenge because we really are so habituated to take refuge in our thoughts, to take refuge, to rely on them. And we even are sticky about the most trivial thoughts, but the mind keeps sticking to things. So the idea of not having thoughts, of not leaning on them, of letting go, can often lead to a lot of fear, a deep amount of fear, because our whole reference for who we are and what world is about that we've been leaning on is suddenly not there. I think of it somewhat culturally in a similar way as the Y2K thing going on with computers, that we've become so computer-dependent. And there's so much fear about what happens if our computers... I mean, I'm afraid of losing stuff. We all are. I just got this recently from a student in D.C. Imagine if instead of cryptic text strings, your computer produced error messages in haiku verse. Just listen to a few. A file that big? It might be very useful, but now it is gone.
Ready? <laughs> First snow, then silence. This thousand dollar screen dies so beautifully. <laughs> a crash reduces your expensive computer to a simple stone. <laughs> Oh, there's so many good ones. (laughs) Three things are certain, death, taxes, and lost data. Guess which has occurred? (laughs) (laughs) Forgive me, I ate your page. (laughs) It was crunchy and tart upon my tongue. (laughs) Enough. So because we live so much and are so attached to the world of thoughts, there's such identification. It takes a lot of intentionality to recognize and open out of the glue of thinking. Most of you know the Wizard of Oz and what happened in that story. There they had the great and terrible Oz and Dorothy and all her companions totally mesmerized, totally believing, right? So who pulled the curtain? to reveal the source of the appearances. Toto, right. So in a way, we're training our inner Toto to pull the curtain, (laughs) you know? (laughs) This is the dog self we have to release, you know, too, but... But meanwhile, it's a skillful means that we are shining a light. There is a sense of remembering. And this is the effort of mindfulness. Ah, thinking, thinking. And then pulling the curtain, as Rodney described, we shine this light of awareness. We really look. And what happens? We make this effort, pull the curtain, notice thinking, thinking. We look, and then we pause. This is a really important part of the practice of not getting sucked back into either thinking or being mechanical, kind of driving the system, so to speak. We pause. Note thoughts and pause. And then let go into what's predominant, into what we experience. Sometimes there's nothing really calling, so relax back into the breath. Other times we drop into the body, we open to what's there. Now, most of us have brought with us some major and recurrent stories that keep arising, true? That bring up a whole chain reaction. When there's a lot of glue, it becomes really critically important on this path to note the thinking, the conceptual mind, the whole display that arises out of, out of it, and to open to the energies that generate those thoughts. Our freedom comes when we feel fully what's real. And all of our thinking, all of our moods, have an experience of vibration in the body. Part of the reason we take refuge in thoughts is to not experience our bodies. We dissociate because we don't feel that we can handle it. So a whole lot of our practice here is gradually discovering that we can handle this life that we can open into these bodies and feel fully. And we do it bit by bit. It's not meant to be an all at once. 
and it does build confidence that we can handle what's here. The greatest training grounds are the stories that have the most charge. I mean, sometimes I know for myself at retreat that I get really discouraged when I realized I've gotten hooked back into one of my top ten, you know, and I'm just kind of running it and running it until I remember that this is the ground of awakening. This is the place where freedom's possible if there's a willingness, and it also takes a courage to hang out with what's there. Now, my current movie theme, as I started telling you a little earlier, has a lot to do with my son, who I adore and also have all the parental reactivity with. And the storyline is pretty much, I want him to do X, Y, and Z, his homework, his responsibilities, and he usually doesn't, or partly doesn't. (laughs) And so even when I feel like I'm in a relative place of equanimity, when I catch that he is not doing something, the anger just flares up in a really big way. So I get absorbed in the momentum of the story, and the story is something like, um, he's going to fail in life, I failed him, he's not respecting me, you know, it's blame, 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 and there's a self and there's an adversary. This is the incarnation of a very solid sense of self. And you'll see it here with certain stories. It's like all of a sudden, everything's really thick, really sticky, not easy to sense you know, any sort of coming and going, we're just stuck. So what I've begun to do more and more, it's really part of my home practice, is when I feel that big wave of anger, to absolutely stop, to absolutely pause. There's a real art to pausing. I mean, it's really hard to do because everything in us is wired to react, to try to make ourselves feel better. So I pause, and then go into the body, anger, vibration, intensity, heat, yes to the anger, not judging it, because that can easily be a spin-off, you know? Anger, then something's wrong with me for feeling angry. Yes to what's there, then fear, shame, I'm a bad mother, opening to that. The more I pause and open to what's there, the more the sense of identification and thickness loosens, and the more possibility of responding in a more creative way. And this is our practice, to not keep rerunning the habitual route, to notice the thinking, the stories, and pause and stop, and not do, be with. In the book, The Right Stuff, written by Tom Wolfe, he describes the training of uh, elite military test pilots and their ability the the requirement that they're able to have total focus and presence in the most terrifying situations. And I'd just like to read you a little bit from that. He writes about the development of the X-15. He says, you're flying at an attitude in the thin air at the edge of space where the stars and the moon came out at noon in an atmosphere so thin that the ordinary laws of aerodynamics no longer applied and a plane could skid into a flat spin like a cereal bowl on wax formica counter and then start tumbling, not spinning and diving, but tumbling end over end. That happens in retreat, right? We experience that. In the skids, the tumbles, the spins, there was only one thing you could let yourself think about. What do I do next? They used to play the tapes of pilots going into the final dive, the one that killed them, because a lot died. 
and the man would be tumbling going end over end, all the aerodynamics long gone, and not one prayer left, and he knew it, and he would be screaming into the microphone, I've tried A, I've tried B, I've tried C, I've tried D, what do I do next? That happens here too, right? When it's really difficult. But, it turned out, there was no way to maneuver out of a hypersonic tumble. The pilot took a furious beating from the G-forces and from being thrown about the cockpit. The more he experimented with the controls, the worse fix he was in. The solution, Wolf wrote, became clear after an accident involving test pilot Chuck Yeager, who was battered unconscious and fell seven miles before hitting the denser atmosphere and coming to, and then managing to put the ship into a spin. That was good, a mere spin he knew how to get out of, and he survived. So that was the solution, and it defied every bit of training, every shred of instinct, everything the pilots knew or thought they knew. You take your hands off the controls. You sit there and do absolutely nothing but sit there and fall. You take your hands off the controls, Wolf wrote. In fact, that was the only choice you had. There's nothing wrong with the skillful means of, of changing how we sit and attending and focusing on the breath. But the deepest healing comes from not doing, from a relaxing back into simply being with how it's happening, wakeful attention. It's the power of mindfulness that with increased recognition, just recognizing and being with, that there's less clinging, there's less of that thickness and solidity and suffering of self. And this is the basic transformation that the Buddha talked about, this shift from a doing self that's trying to control our experience and not feel bad and feel better to the awareness that recognizes and experiences what is happening, not doing. We connect with a compassionate and open space. Now, as we open out of our self-stories, as we begin to see the glue and feel the intensity, the mind begins to get quieter. There's less and less fixation, and less reactivity. But as many of you noticed, and the the questions have come up here in the mornings, we still can sense that there's a doer, somebody being mindful, somebody at the controls. It's subtle. There's not a lot of self, but there's still someone home that's controlling the meditation. It's possible to recognize and release even this ghost self, this kind of phantom self that is hanging around, even if there's not a lot of thinking, just this sense that someone's there doing. And we do this by including in mindfulness even that nitty-gritty sense of a ghost self. It's called self-reflection. We turn the mind. We look towards even that. Who's aware? We look towards the source of the movie, of the thoughts, just to check out for right now, if you, well, just to become aware of the fact of listening to a Dharma talk and any thoughts or feelings, anything that's going on right now. Just become aware and start noticing what's true in your experience. (laughs) 
and then turning the mind with the inquiry, who is aware? Who is listening right now? Who is generating thoughts? Who's liking or not liking? If there's some feelings, who's feeling this? And in whatever you see, whatever you notice, just relax into that. Relax into what is. This is the ground of being. We continue practice, thoughts arise, they're not too sticky. Turning the mind, who is thinking? Who's aware? And then just let go fully into what is seen. What is seen when we look? This is a question that came up. What do we see when we look into who's looking? Thokni Rinpoche describes this way, the seeing of no thing is the supreme seeing. Do we see a thing? Do we see a self? A story. The disciple Hoi Ke asked Bodhidharma, please help me to quiet my mind. Bodhidharma said, bring me your mind so that I can quiet it. After a moment, Hui Kui said, but I can't find my mind. There, said Bodhidharma, I have now quieted your mind. (laughs) (laughs) It said quite beautifully in the Gospel according to Zen, there is no place to seek the mind. It is like the footprints of birds in the sky. But to see this is to free us, to begin to turn the mind and see there's no thing, just a changing flow of experience. Friend and Dharma teacher on the West Coast, Wes Nisker, says, seeing is relieving. (laughs) It relieves us of the solidness of self. So clinging to no thing becomes possible as we see the subtlest level of glue, layer of glue. So just to, just to review briefly, we start where we are with whatever comes up in this process of pulling the curtain. Whatever's right now, and there's a question that can be useful for some, what is true now? What's asking for acceptance or inclusion? What's here? And then we look. This is a doing in a, in a sense. There's an intentional looking. We see what's there and open and feel it. Recognition has layers. There's a recognition that's glancing. Oh, fear, fear. And then there's the recognition of fear that has an entire experience that's receptive, honoring, feeling fully. Deep recognition. Opening compassionately to what's there. When things start settling, when there's less fixation, we begin to notice more of the arising and passing of thoughts. We can start turning the mind to even notice Who's looking? Who's aware? Who's listening? Whatever is seen behind that final curtain, to simply relax and let go into that, become that. Sokni Rinpoche describes it this way, that we go around with this movie that we're watching in the mind, and he has his hands like I have mine facing outward. And And the instructions are simply to look, turn and look. See, let go, be free. And that image helps me because 
turning this mind and simply looking at what's true. Look into your mind. Who's there? And then just let go into what's seen. This practice of looking and seeing cultivates what's called truth-discerning awareness, seeing the truth of our nature. So what does it look like, our nature? What do we see? There's no thing that many of you have described already in interviews that, there's, that it's changing. Sensations, images, sounds. There's no edge to what we see. There's no center. It's open space. There's nothing static. In Pali, this is called anatta. No self, empty of any solid, unchanging entity. And we get glimmers of it. But there's such a strong conditioning to fixate, to lock into cognition. It's such a habit that sometimes the idea of empty of self can confuse us. So to drop the idea, just as the Buddha said, ehi pasiko, come and see, look for yourself. So we have that intention to look, to see, and we see eventually as we really pay attention that it's all changing and there's no solid self. But this emptiness of self is not vacant. It's not vacant. It's not void. In fact, what we see and what we realize is this cognizance, this illumination, this knowing that's going on. With each moment, with each sound you're hearing now, there's an instantaneous knowing going on. No self doing the knowing, no self doing the thinking. But right now, sounds are heard. Sensations are felt. This is the natural cognizance of mind. Joanna Macy writes, we are an information flow through, a process of experiencing, knowing. So this empty of self is fertile with knowing. It's a really valuable practice as you begin to quiet down to simply sense this cognizant awareness, just cognizance. As you're listening, just noticing the knowing of sound, that moment of knowing, our walking meditation in this kind of open receptivity that sensations are known, known, known. I sometimes use that little note and then just drop into it again. The mind is like a flame called self-illumination. It happens by itself. We don't need a separate flashlight. The mind knows itself. It illuminates its own empty, open nature. And when we become this awareness, we become this empty, cognizant nature, there's an openness, a boundlessness that's experienced. Sokne Rinpoche describes it this way. Empty essence means very, very open and very spacious, like a totally open sky. Space has no center or edge. Nothing is prevented. It is completely unimpeded. Empty essence, like space, is not made out of anything whatsoever. At the same time, there is a sense of knowing, an awake quality, a cognizant nature, not separate from this openness of space, Like the sun shining in daytime, the daylight and space are not separate. It's all sunlit space. 
Nothing is confined, nothing is blocked out. All the doors and windows are wide open, like a total welcome of all possibilities, which doesn't get caught up in whatever happens. It is wide open. The unity of empty essence and cognizant nature is that of unconfined capacity, boundlessness. So I began this talk describing how it's part of the evolutionary story of our unfolding to feel separate, to feel boundaried. It's the way it's meant to be. And it's also our natural capacity to recognize fixation and relax the grip, to relax back into original, uncontrived, natural awareness, to realize who we are. From the beginning, all beings are Buddha, like water and ice. Without water, no ice. Outside us, no Buddhas. How near the truth, yet how far we seek. The pure lotus land is not far away. Hearing this truth, heart humble and grateful, to praise and embrace it, to practice its wisdom, brings unending blessings, brings mountains of merit. And if we turn inward and prove our true nature, that true self is no self, our own self is no self, how bright and transparent the moonlit of wisdom. What is there outside us? What is there we lack? Nirvana is openly shown to our eyes. This earth where we stand is the pure lotus land and this very body, the body of Buddha. As we begin to identify less with this world of thoughts, we realize that our life, each moment, is just appearing like waves on the ocean. It's been described as a moving dance of awareness, truly empty of self that all experience belongs to and expresses the sacred life, everything. Nothing's exempt. It's all an expression of sacred awareness. Now, the radiance of this realization, the radiance of recognizing emptiness is compassion. What the mind experiences as truth, the heart knows as love. All has been included. All is connected in a wakeful and caring presence. If empty of I, then everything is present, connected. Toklu Ergen writes, the natural expression of awareness is the flame-like heat of compassion, not cooled out floating on a cloud. There is active total engagement and presence because there is nothing that needs to be held back. This is what's also been described as the sure heart's release. This wakefulness, this realizing of no self, of being at all, allows us to love fully, unconditionally. So our path to remember, to remember to look, to see, 
to let go into what is, to relax back into our boundless, compassionate Buddha nature. The light, the truth, our Buddha nature is only a split second away, a half breath away. We can trust that. So let's sit for a few moments together. is aware, who is attending, turning the mind, relaxing into what is seen, becoming that. In this high place, it is as simple as this. Leave everything you know behind. Step toward the cold surface. Say the old prayer of love and open both arms. Those who come with empty hands will stare into the lake astonished. There, in the cold light, reflecting pure snow, the true shape of your own face. In this high place, it is as simple as this. Leave everything you know behind. 